Hey everyone, welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. We're about to get into an episode I did as a guest at the closed win-loss session. We've talked through win-loss analysis, we talked through customer research, we talked about marketing fundamentals. For anyone that's looking for an episode about building a marketing strategy, this is a good one to listen to. We're about to get into it right now. I hope you enjoy it. And now to this episode. Welcome to this session of Win Last Week. I'm Trenton with Closed, and I'm really excited about this session because it's uh, accompanied with me is Chris Walker here from Refine Labs. He's the CEO. And Chris is one of the, I think, most uh, brilliant minds out there in marketing today. I've been following his LinkedIn content and other content for uh, about a year and a half now. I've just been really impressed with the stuff he's done. Um, so I know that he's going to have some amazing insights for everybody tuning in today. So the session today uh, is about why empathy is so important in B2B marketing and how it's kind of being ignored in favor of the latest trend, the hottest thing, or technology, all that kind of stuff that B2B marketers are getting so buried with. They're forgetting about how important it is to truly understand customers and really understand what motivates them and how to help them. So Chris has talked a lot about this in, in a lot of his content, and so I'm excited to hear his thoughts on it. So welcome, Chris. We're excited to have you here. Trent, really happy to be here with you and looking forward to getting into this. Cool, man. So the first you know, topic I wanted to hit on is just the why around empathy. Like, why should we care? Why should B2B marketers develop empathy for their buyers? So yeah, if you have any thoughts there, let's just dive in. Because the goal of having a business is to deliver value to customers. And the only way that you can deliver value to people is by understanding them deeply so that you can create products that help them and communicate those products to them in a way that resonates. So it's great to think that you're like some Robin Hood or something that empathy is good, and it is. But there's also a very clear business rationale of why you should be doing it. Totally, yes. Kind of what I hear a lot when I use the word empathy in business settings, or even when I feel like I'm trying to be empathetic to people's situation is like, this isn't business-like, this isn't revenue-minded, it's not trying to drive growth, it's, uh, you're being too soft, you know what I mean? And yeah, so I love what you're saying is it's not just good to be a good person and try to understand your buyers and figure out how do you, you can help them, but you've actually seen that it can drive revenue and be good for the business too, right? 100%. And it just comes down to what companies will do is they'll do whatever easiest and in their best interest. There's information and data everywhere about what customers are looking for, how they discover things, how they want to go through a buying process. I've done that research on my own. It's everywhere. If any marketer that's listening to this or anyone else wanted to do it, it's really easy to go and get that information by just accessing customers. The problem is the answers that they get will, are things that they don't want to hear because they are misaligned with how the company wants to do things easiest and best for them. Yeah, that's super interesting. Because I always wonder, like, in almost every company I've joined as part of the marketing team, I think the most information I get about the customer or the buyer are like PDF buyer personas that are super generalized. It's like, this is this is stereotype. Yeah, it's just stereotypical yeah. stuff. Like it doesn't really help me understand who I'm talking to. And really, the only times I've been able to get into that is 
at an event, like a big company event where a bunch of customers are at and I dive in and proactively talk to them. But it's always awkward because it's like, I'm not introduced to them. I'm, it's not given the freedom to me to like, hey, let's go and just meet customers. So why do you think, like, it seems like such an obvious question. Like, why is it important to understand your customers? Why is it important to have empathy for them? Then why does it feel like so many marketing departments or marketers in general, like just skip this step? Do you feel like they understand them through, they're like, oh, I know Google Analytics and I got all this data, so I understand them. And they stop there. Do you think that's what it is? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, why the, do people skip it? The why of why to do this is so that you can drive strategy. Yeah. That's it. Another thing from a competitive advantage standpoint, very few companies do this. So when you do it and you understand those people well, it's very clear. It stands out. It's why my content stands out. It's how you get content to work. It's because it's so visceral, it's so detailed. I know what's going on inside of those companies very, very clearly and can demonstrate it and communicate it very effectively. So that's the why. It allows us to go in and understand, okay, this exact segment is who we want to go after. A lot of companies won't do that. They'll have 20 segments and then it was free for all, do whatever. And when they do that, it also drives their messaging on the website to be broad and generic and it drives their product to be wide and generic. Right. And so by understanding customers allows you to do segmentation, which allows you to build strategy, which is basically marketing 101. And so I'm fascinated when companies do not do this. Like I literally learned those principles in a course on a Wharton online course called Segmentation, Targeting and Positioning, Marketing 101. Totally. The reason that companies do not do it is because over time, what I've noticed is that there's a misunderstanding about what marketing does inside of companies. Everyone thinks that marketing is just about promotion. And when it comes to promotion, you get into tactics, tech, analytics, and data, all the other stuff that people love to latch on to right now, which creates a place where you're doing marketing, you're looking at data, but you don't really understand whether or not the stuff is working because you don't understand the people well. And so that's why I think, I think that companies should do it so that you can drive an effective strategy inside of your business. I find that most companies spend way more time researching their competitors than researching their customers, which I think is an incredible losing game, which leads to a ton of commoditization, me too products and things like that. And I believe that's why our, what we do both from us, like a demand marketing strategy at our company, but as well as how we've shaped our offering about what we do for companies is so uniquely differentiated from like some commodity agency that's going to push buttons for you. And so I encourage people to do it. I recognize that most marketers are not trained to do these things. I know that they're not. Nobody tells you to go out and talk to 20 customers and prospects within your first 90 days. I literally presented at a a conference just before we came in here talking about inside of the first 90 days, what I do, it always includes go and talk to customers, ideally in person at their place of business. Right. And so most no marketers are ever told to do that. It's not on their KPI sheet. There's no metrics set at the top that would ever incentivize a marketer to do that. And I have empathy as well because I've been in companies where I was trying to do that. And the sales team's like, that's my account. Stay the fuck away from it. Sorry, I don't know know if we're allowed to swear in here. You can take it out if you want. (laughs) But like the stay away from it, that's a, a different problem. But generally, I feel like the main problem is that marketers don't even acknowledge that it's something that they should do. Yeah. I mean, I felt that, like I said, in my career, and it was 
no one came to me and said, don't do this. Right. But it was never focused on or facilitated in a way that it made me feel like I should, or that I could, it almost felt off limits. Like you shouldn't be talking to customers. You're not part of customer success or sales. Who are you to mess with these guys? Right. And that's kind of the other question I have is the people that did get to talk to customers inside marketing orgs, like product marketers, right? They were out doing case studies. They were out talking to them quite a bit. And then that information was almost like telephone game. If you remember playing that game, like it was like telephone game to the rest of the marketing team. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I just wonder, like, how well is that telephone process work, right? And I'm trying to think of this too, like in my own marketing department as we grow, I have a couple of new employees starting and I'm like, hey, your first two weeks, like I almost don't care what role you are if you don't have never done this before. I'm going to have you go talk with customers and listen to like lost deal buyer interviews as well, because I think you get a lot of insights when you're talking to buyers, not just customers. Right. Mm-hmm. Where would you draw the line? Like. Does it make sense to send a whole huge marketing team and some of these big companies out and just like go talk to every single customer you can and they're almost to the point where it's too much, right? Like how do you balance that? You need to help your marketers talk to customers and buyers and Mm -hmm. get that information firsthand because they'll come with their own insights, which is cool. But at the same time, how do you not like bombard everybody and step on all the other communication that's happening at the same time, right? Yeah. So one you mentioned product marketers do this. I have a large resistance to the specialization of roles. I think that it boxes marketers in. I think it restricts them from doing things that are most effective. And I think that it narrows you into a place where you don't look at things holistically. You just look at things in your little box. Sure, right? sure. So as a marketer, I'm a product marketer. I do ABM. I run demand gen. I run business strategy. I define pricing. I set messaging. I write copy holistic marketing, you can see the whole field, you can make better decisions when you're looking at the whole field. When it comes to getting the information to people, what I would do is that I would have a podcast where I interview customers and prospects as a method of market research, which then our entire company can listen to and hear it firsthand. Yeah. That's what we do right now, right? So you don't need to have every marketer go out and visit across the country to fly to go visit some customers to figure that out. I think that you should do that for some people, for sure. sure. Yeah. But the breakdown here is getting the information back to the rest of the team. So what happens is somebody goes out and do, does research, takes some notes, identifies some stereotypes. I've, the last time I used a PDF buyer persona was 2017 <laughs> when I saw it. We were going after respiratory therapists. The entire thing was stereotypes. Has a lot of tattoos. Loves to hang out in the break room. And I was like, fuck, like I've met these people. (laughs) Gone out and met these people. Yes, they have tattoos, but this has nothing to do with their propensity to buy our product. Sure. And so that's the last time I've used one. And then from there, it's been video podcast with thought leaders, prospects, and customers that gets distributed to the market as a way to drive demand. And a secondary outcome is market research across the company. Yeah, I love that strategy. And you're one of the few people I've seen that's a master at, at that. Of You come up with a content strategy, but it's not just like a lot of people say, I'm going to do a podcast because it's going to build brand awareness. But in your mind, you're like, there's 10 reasons I'm doing a podcast. And then all of these unforeseen consequences and unforeseen reasons that you probably didn't even know were going to be cool mm-hmm. until you start doing it for a year. And you're like, man, this was amazing. So I, I love the way you think about 
everybody should kind of be a generalist. Obviously, some people have, you know, specific skills that are probably stronger at than others, but everyone should at least think like a general strategist, get their feet wet mm-hmm. in a bunch of different things, and then build your strategies around understanding your customer. And then, like you said, communicate that internally, but then also becomes amazing content externally, right? Yeah. And that's what I've, that's what I've done for my entire career is yeah. basically go and understand customers deeply. If you know how to do it and execute it appropriately, you're going to have insights that nobody else in the customer knows that can then influence strategy. Right. And then over time, you get better at communicating those things, right? When I was 23 and I went and got those insights and I wanted to have the company change something that they were doing for some of that, it was a little bit more challenging than it is now. I have a lot of practice. Sure. I don't think that there's anything more important in marketing than understanding customers. And understanding them deeper than just like I read through a PDF by a persona check. Because that's what I see. That you you talk to them and not on an ongoing basis. I've created a system where I talk to CMOs, people like marketing leaders like you, yeah, five times a day. That's what you need as a pure strategist, right? Yeah. I think that product marketers set up a little thing where they do some research on some feature and they give away gift cards so that you can go and ask answer questions, yeah. but they don't have some type of ongoing stream that has a purpose, but not such a narrow purpose as that. Like yeah. I want when I'm working with trying to get after customers, and I've done this with marketers, but just so people that are like, oh, we sell the CISOs, it's gonna be harder. I've done this with emergency medicine physicians and ICU physicians too. I want them to feel like I'm their peer, that I understand things at a deep level, that I know a lot of people in the industry, that I can connect them with people if they need, that I produce the best content so that they want to be on our show. That's what I want people to think about me. And meanwhile, we have a ton of vendors out there that act and are received like a vendor and you're not in the circle. You don't get those insights. You don't get those opportunities. Yeah. I mean, it sounds brilliant. It's super hard to execute, right? It's actually not. Yeah. Yeah, I I want to back on this one. It's not difficult to execute. It requires a commitment to the strategy, the right mindset that I'm trying to truly build relationships with the people and be a valuable member of their community. And then I would get introduced to thought leaders. I would build relationships with them. I would go and visit them. I would understand their goals and KPIs. I would connect them with other people so that the next time we were at the conference, I was standing at the bar or wherever at the, you know, in some part of the conference. And they come over to me and introduce me to six other people that don't use our product. Yeah, that's awesome. You're basically being someone's friend. That's challenging. I know that that's actually quite challenging for salespeople because they have incentives that aren't necessarily aligned to acting that way. But for marketers, there's no excuse. Yeah. There's literally no excuse. And that's why I believe that marketing is the best position to be in this because they don't have misaligned incentives and they can be 100% objective if they bring the right mindset to it. And that's why I think that when marketing drives the strategy, it's more objective. I think that's amazing. And the reason I said it's hard to execute for for me is uh, when you get into some of those industries where, and you were kind of there like with respiratory therapists and it's like, very, very technical, right? And I think that the challenge that arises, especially in bigger companies with big marketing teams is, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have ambition to do that kind of thing. And they're just not, they're just not allowed to almost like they, mm-hmm. kind of, you kind of alluded to it. Some of their KPIs are measured in such a way that there's no time for them to go become friends with a bunch of mm-hmm. potential buyers or customers, right? 
Yeah. So, when I did this, I was 26 years old. I'd never been into a ICU before. I didn't understand anything about these people. I had no contacts. And within over a two-year period of time, a lot of people in the industry knew me because of the approach. Right. And so, but I agree with you that marketers do not have that luxury in most companies. I was lucky that inside of the company that I worked for, there was eight marketers on the marketing team. And all eight marketers had a KPI on a quarterly basis to go and visit five customers. That's cool. Or prospects go into five different accounts. Mm -hmm. And I would do some of those with the sales reps for meetings. I would do some of those with existing customers that would were local. And I would do some with influential people or, or high profile prospects that weren't in a buying cycle. Right. I mean, that's a great strategy. For marketers that are in a position where you are directly not allowed to do that for whatever reason, I'd consider whether or not you're in the right organization. That's what I was going to ask that. Basically, what they're saying is that marketing can't do marketing. <laughs> right. Understanding customers isn't important enough to us. It's the only input that you can do effective marketing with. Yeah. That's, why, that's why most companies put out stuff that's fluffy, gets no engagement, messaging doesn't resonate because they haven't taken these steps and they don't look at it at that way in order to refine the messaging strategy. We yeah, totally. go through a, a complete website rebuild every six months. We're learning too fast. Yeah. Right? Most companies put up a website, never touched any of that for at least two years unless they're putting up SEO blogs and things. We're doing our homepage on an ongoing basis because the amount of activity that we get with buyers through podcasts, conversations, things like that, allows us to rapidly iterate and go fast. I love that. And, and you're getting the insights directly from buyers, whereas a lot of companies that I've experienced and seen, they, they would try to iterate immediately with some sort of tech stack solution about A-B testing, right? Like, oh, we've got two ideas about what our customers or buyers want to hear about messaging that we think is going to be amazing and resonate because I've joined a couple of sales, whatever it is, right? And then they're like, let's go buy an A-B testing solution or let's have somebody on the team do this full time and just A-B test. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by like, they get stuck in the technology and what they think is the right data instead of you need to just go develop this empathy through real conversations with, with these buyers, right? And so it's exactly what you're saying. You guys are seeing that because you're having these conversations so frequently. It's almost like you don't need to A-B test because you're, you're constantly optimizing towards no, conversations. No yeah, no test yeah. necessary. I can say confidently that you will go out and have eight conversations within one segment. You will find patterns and be able to draw conclusions across the entire segment because Every single person says the same thing and they have the exact same rationale as to why they think that way. Right. And then you start to extrapolate. Yep. Yeah. You almost hit a point of saturation where like new themes aren't coming up too much. You're starting to see very consistent things that people are needing or wanting you to solve, right? That they aren't yeah. finding a solution for. And then if I need to go in order to convince executives to make a move, if I need to go out and do a large scale survey in order to validate the things that I already know are true, right. and I'll do that, <laughs> then, I, then I can do that. It's pretty easy to grab 600 people out of Zoom info, send a survey, get 300 responses, analyze it statistically and show that. Yeah. But the, the truth is that I already know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the biggest things we see with our customers, like our direct admins or power users, whatever you want to call them of clothes are a lot of times product marketers or competitive intelligence persons. And they find all these insights. They see it in our buyer interviews. They see all these reasons why their companies are winning and losing deals. And they have like 
oh, I've got five really good reasons why we're losing, kind of like you're saying there, through these conversations with buyers. And a lot of times they have a hard time, like they'll kick, and maybe they do it the wrong way, they'll kick this information over the fence to like the executive team. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, here's the five top reasons we're losing these deals in the last year for this segment or this product and this price range. And they'll get immediate pushback. Like product management will be like, that's not true. I don't believe that at all. Sales will be like, no, it's always pricing and product or we didn't watch anything. I think that's kind of an interesting point. Like a lot of times you can get this data and then there's still that hurdle of convincing the rest of the team or executive team to actually take action on it. When you're doing your agency work, like do you run into that quite a bit? So I just want to touch on one. If you have somebody that doesn't see it the way that it's clearly true, yeah. The easiest way that I found is to just put them in a situation where they can see it, right? So sure. CEO doesn't understand that these three segments operate very differently for these reasons that I know. I'm going to go to the segment that we're targeting and we're always losing in because they don't have a need for our product. I'm going to bring them with me. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to go through the interview process that I've already gone through seven times. And they're going to be able to see it for themselves with a the customer as to yeah. why they don't need the product and why the value proposition doesn't resonate. And then I'm going to go and take them to a customer that's a great fit in the right segment. And I'm going to do the exact same thing so they see it, right? right? That's how I do it because I care a lot about these things. I recognize that most marketers don't. Most marketers would never do that. Yeah, that's awesome. I love like use the buyer's perspective to convince the strategy moves that need to happen, right? And you've already identified this is what we need to do. Yeah, those people, despite anything that they say, are not listening to customers. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I, true, I truly believe that. I've been right. a marketer at, at at least six different companies before I started my company. And I know for sure that the CEO was not going and visiting customers to understand those things in order to drive the strategy. It's why I think that I'm a strong CMO or sorry, C, CEO. I guess I kind of like CMO <laughs> too. Yeah. But I think that's why I'm really strong because I can drive strategy across the entire business because I literally understand the market and customers better than anyone else here. Yeah, that's a great point. We see that a ton too, where in board meetings with like their VCs, whoever they've raised money with, the question always gets brought up like, why are you losing against these customers, these other competitors? And I've talked to a few executive leaders recently as I'm trying to understand this process and they have told me many times, like they'll be sitting in a board reading, meeting and that question will come up so many times, like, why are we winning and losing? Mm -hmm. And they'll just go around the table and they, they all know, like somebody will be, a CEO will start to say, oh, here's why this, this and this, and none of it's because he ever spoke to a recent buyer. Mm -hmm. And then the salesperson, sales leader will say this, this, and it's all usually different and it's never really the exact reasons, right? Yeah, and I mean, typically what I find, cause I've done, uh, win and loss analysis on top of after someone in sales had done it. So I'm going to go and look at the sales close loss reason. And then I'm yeah. going to go and do the research myself with the customer. So here's literally what I do. Hey, blah, 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 company. My name's Chris Walker. I'm the director of customer experience at XYZ company. I see that we, we had an opportunity open with you that we didn't end, end up closing. Would love to, I'm not here to try and change your mind. I just would love to understand your perspective so that we can do better next time. Do you have five minutes to chat? Yeah, And then I'm just going to un understand and over here in the closed loss reason, it's like price, price, price or whatever. <laughs> and over here, it's like, and then what, what you actually get, we're in a three-year contract with your competitor. We use it for this use case and your product doesn't have it. We only treat this type of patients. And so therefore we have no need for your product. 
And it's so fascinating how you see those two things very different. And I believe that it's because there's somebody that's not invested in the outcome that's able to make people feel safe to tell them the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that feedback a lot. Like, I don't want to tell the sales rep the real reason, or I don't want to even talk to them for two reasons. A lot of times, like one, they're still in negotiation mode. The deal maybe isn't even all the way closed. And they're like, I'm not going to tell you exactly why yet. Cause I, I'm, you're still trying to overcome my objections. Like mm-hmm. you're still trying to sell me. It's not just you coming and finding the real reason why this deal was won or lost. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times we hear like some people are just too nice. Like they just really don't want to tell this poor totally. sales rep that they blew the deal or they weren't great. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a cool thing about humanity that people are still nice, but it's sucky for that salesperson. They can't really get the truth out of somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And something you said previously kind of caught my attention where you talked about how sometimes companies get way too, focused on competition like and they're so worried about what competition is doing in our industry specifically we see that so many times where sometimes uh, when we're talking to people about the value of doing win-loss analysis like on a grand scale they'll be like oh that's that's interesting but we would rather invest in tools that tell us what our competitors are doing and they're like so heavy tracking that kind of data that they almost ignore talking to buyers that one that one kind of boggles my mind like your competitors aren't the ones actually signing checks. You're just chasing competitors all the time. You're going to hit this product parity. Like there's no way to actually innovate around them or to do better content or any of that kind of stuff like you talked about. Mm -hmm. To me, the best insights come from buyers. So what do you think makes that happen? Like in your experience of working with companies, why do people get so bogged down in competitive intelligence, competitive research versus prioritizing buyer insights? So first off, When you spend a lot of time analyzing your competitors, by definition, you are behind, not ahead. Because they have already done some type of research, might have been a lot, might have been none, to make this decision to then go and actually start implementing it and moving forward and learning. And meanwhile, you're waiting there 6, 12 months behind their decision cycle to see what they're doing and then try and catch up. Yeah. That is a losing framework. Right. And so the way to do this, because I recognize that most companies never get good data to make good decisions about strategy. And so I go to the customer and I listen to all the things that the customer isn't getting, that they're not happy with, all of those things, which is basically competitive research without ever looking at a competitor. I know almost zero companies that we quote unquote compete with. I actually don't think that we compete with anybody. I think that we've built something that's very different. And so I'm not interested in competing. I'm interested in creating a differentiated offering that you either work with us, you try and do it yourself or go do something, go do something else. And so I always get the information. The customer will tell you all of the gaps and what they're getting right now. And I don't even ask them about how was that agency doing before? How what was it cost? Like, I don't care. It's they will be open about saying we're no proactive, no investment strategy, doesn't care about business results, only reports on conversions. People that we're working with have never been an employee at a company like ours and have no idea what's going on. They don't understand what Salesforce is. They're not in Salesforce. Right. And then all we do is just build the exact opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how we've been able to do it. So I, I recommend spending zero time on competitors. I actually think it's counterproductive for the reason that I stated before. I think that you're actually going to fall behind. So I would rather talk to customers and have my competitors try and follow me. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Because I know that I can move 10 times faster than the people that are behind me because of the way that I make decisions. Yeah. So other people are just going to be following behind, not really understand the strategy, not be able to operationalize it. That's why I produce so much content. Yeah. You are so amazing. Because I recognize that no, very few people even have the commitment level right. or the desire to actually do any of the things that I say. Yeah. So most people won't do anything with it. The people that were going to do something with it, we're going to do something with it anyway. I'd prefer they do it with my information so that they feel good about me when they're successful. Yeah. Let's dive into that a little bit more because one thing I see too is I see some strong product marketers and marketers that have the ambition. They're like, I'm going to go develop this empathy. I'm going to go understand my buyers. So for like three months, they'll try really hard, right? They'll go interview as many people as they can get in touch with. But the thing I love that you do is you've turned it into a program. It's programmatic for you, right? It's never a on-off switch, Mm -hmm. research, academic-minded focus. This is a core strategy for your business is talking to buyers. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like how from your beginning days, right? Because think of somebody that's trying to do this now that has no maybe idea how to do it. Like how did you start? How did you get people to talk with you when you were not LinkedIn, Chris Walker, you were just yeah. some guy, Chris Walker, like, how did you get there? Right. I'd love to hear that. That's journey a little bit. Yeah. So specifically on Refine Labs, I think the important note for people was that when I did this at my company, I'd done it for four companies as an employee beforehand. So I really, I really knew where I was going with this. Yeah. The way that I did it when I had 3000 followers on LinkedIn and got no posts and had, had no likes on engagement or on posts and had no podcast it was basically kind of like a nobody to CMOs. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the way that I started to get the interactions was that I would reach out to CMOs at companies that I thought would be a good fit for us at some point. And I would ask them if they wanted to be on our podcast. Seven out of eight said yes. I wouldn't talk to them. I understood their priorities. I understood how they were measured. I understand what tech they were implementing, what their priorities were, what things were being challenged, where the holes are on their team, just by asking them questions. And it doesn't feel when you're on a podcast, if you can interview well, it doesn't feel like you're even asking people questions that you're taking that information for market research. Yeah, sure. So I did that six or seven times and then found all of those insights and data that I needed to. Meanwhile, I was recording my answers because part of this was I wanted to be able to have some things where I could talk in order to demonstrate credibility, create micro clips for LinkedIn, mm-hmm. created those clips, put them out on LinkedIn, and then started to get the engine turning. Yeah, that's awesome. So when it comes down to it, if you're trying, like at the moment, CMOs is the target for us, but it doesn't matter who it is. People need to understand that you can help them. And the way that you show them that you can help them is you by giving them information that they could use on their own and be more successful, which creates credibility for you. So that when you want to talk to them, people want you at your event to speak at the event. They want you on this virtual segment. They want you to come on their podcast. The only way to get there, if you're not like already popular in things, is in my view, that maybe not the only way, but the fastest way to get there is definitely to produce content for, on the internet in places where people pay attention. Yeah. And I mean, for me, for someone that's followed your content for a while, it's done two things for me, maybe three. So first, when I started to listen to your content, I was at a really early stage startup and it was all literally so heavily focused on like, you need to bring as many leads to us as humanly possible maybe inhumanly possible as well, right? It was just like drive as many leads as you can. And we did we did so many things looking back now that I'm like, man, those were dumb. Like those were so useless, like content syndication just for the sake of like, let's get some leads in here. 
throw out some Facebook ads on like a gated ebook just so we can get a lead count in here. And then nothing closes. And you talk about this all the time, right? So when I first started to see your content, it did a couple of things for me. One, it I truly felt like, man, this guy has been in my shoes before. He's been through this exact thing because everything he's talking about is exactly how I feel right now. Like this doesn't work. Why am I even wasting my money on this? I can get leads all day long and show that number, but then nobody's happy. They're like, we just need more of that. We need more leads, but none of, nothing closes. So so they just think the answer is more of bad, right? Mm-hmm. And so your content did that for me. It really helped me feel like this guy understands my world better than anybody that I'm around right now. And I was siloed as a marketer of one, like as a marketing team of one. So I had nobody else to talk to. So I was like, I'll just listen to Chris because I feel like he's empathizing with me and talking to, to me on LinkedIn, right? So it was amazing. Your content did that. And then the second thing it did, and I talk about this a lot now, because it closed, I see, I look through all the data we have for our companies that we do these buyer interviews for. And one thing I'm seeing pop up a lot on wins or losses reasons is brand strength and reputation. And Mm -hmm. early in my marketing career, I didn't think of that as being a KPI for a marketing team to measure against. Like, are you actually helping your company close deals because your brand strength and reputation is so strong that people trust you, they trust the brand? To me, it was like, all of my early marketing gigs were just leads, leads, leads. And it was never about like build a brand. So that was mm-hmm. the second thing is that it did is like, if I ever got the chance to hire Chris Walker and I had the budget, I would immediately do it because your content sets you up as somebody that truly knows how to solve these problems mm-hmm. or is at least coming up with like really creative ways to try, right? Mm-hmm. Your content did that. It positioned you and your brand in such a strong leadership position that I I was willing to buy before I'd even really met you, right? I think the only reason both of those things came about with your content and really resonated with me, and I know they have with other marketers as well, is because you invested so much time talking with buyers, talking Mm -hmm. with CMOs. um, And that's why I need to be an amazing person to talk to about developing this empathy for your buyers and and then the insights, the actions you take from that, right? Like you said, Mm -hmm. it's not just about let's create a PDF buyer persona Mm-hmm. You've created a whole program and company strategy around this, which is super impressive. Totally. It also doesn't hurt that I was doing that job for 10 years. Yeah. And now I, now I see what's going on at 35 companies that we work with simultaneously. So we get a lot of data about what's okay. working and what's not. I didn't have that when we started, just but the level of insights and the scale of the information that we see continues to grow. I think that it's a clear competitive advantage on our company relative to anyone that is trying to quote unquote compete with us Yeah, is that we have it. We look at it at the, in the right way. We know how to look at it and we know what to do with it. Yep. Another note on the, cause I, I hear the term like thought leadership thrown around a yeah, lot. Totally. And when I typically hear thought, I don't like using the word because typically it's companies that are just trying to create something to push their product in a PDF or something. Yeah, absolutely. I don't consider what we're doing here thought leadership. I consider it creating information that people like. Yep, exactly. So we've talked a lot about developing this empathy and a lot of it's been talk about our work here at Closed where it's kind of easy for me to develop it because one, I've been in that role before where I'm a product marketer. I'm trying to figure out why we're winning, losing. Mm-hmm. Now as the CEO of a, a, I won't call you a marketing agency, but a <laughs> demand gen agency. I'm, I'm not sure how to define you guys. Yeah, Helping people with growth and revenue, right? You've played that role. So it's kind of like you can almost have that empathy already internally built. 
at the last company I was at, and I want to talk about this just a little bit, is we were selling a really technical DevOps, like developer operations tool that monitored AWS when it went down. So it was like the best of the best engineering teams were looking at tools like this and they're incredibly smart software engineers. And I'm trying to create content for these people, right? And I was hitting the mark, like or mm-hmm. missing the mark so many times because it was a lot of like, let's do some SEO stuff. So I'd go out and find like the top 10 articles about whatever topic worried these people. And then I would just kind of aggregate that. And I'm sure you've seen tons of content like that, right? So I love mm-hmm. what you said. You want to make content that people like. Mm-hmm. Can you give a little bit of advice for somebody in that situation where it's going to take them like two years or more to really develop an understanding of the customer, the buyer well enough to develop content that they will like, where they mm-hmm. won't just laugh at them and be like, this is obviously a marketer writing this. You know, it might take them two years, but they don't have that time. So like, what, what would you do? What would you tell that person to, to go out and do? Exactly what I did when I was selling to emergency physicians that I had in there, you know, saving people's lives in there. And I don't, I don't gone to college for 12 years. I don't have a lot of understanding about all those things that they know. Yeah. So what did I do? Instead of me trying to look over the internet about some like medical case and then write something for it, I would either one, leverage the two clinical specialists inside of our company that had literally done those person's jobs before with our product for 10 years in a medical setting and allow them to write things about it based on the things that I got from the market. So I would set the topics. So I'm good at listening. Or I would use external subject matter experts, like people that had run clinical trials, influential people, people that speak at conferences and have them come on to talk about their topics through that process, you learn way faster. So it didn't take more than six months for me to know more about the clinical data than most of the uh, the people that we were going after. The reason is that our product was 2% of those people's jobs. They have a lot of stuff to worry about. I am very specialized here. So I was actually able to provide a lot of value within six months just because I was very specialized in what I was doing. And so that's the recommendation. You need to look at yourself and assess would someone actually find me credible? Would they listen to me? Do I understand things that are important to them at a deep enough level to do this? If the answer is no, you have options. Use somebody else in your company. Hopefully your company has somebody that has done your buyer's job before. And you can also look externally. That's a great advice. And one of the reasons I love the medium, the podcast medium that you've talked about is it almost makes it easy, right? Like people are more willing to participate when it's like a legitimate thing to send them on to, right? Yeah. I got Uh, one more thing on empathy that I think we should talk through in terms of a lot of people that are running the lead gen model. This is empathy for your buyers. It's also empathy for your sales team. I've done this before. I recommend people do it because it's really helpful. Whenever I was developing a new lead source, specifically when I was testing out a lot of different performance marketing in 2017, when I was collecting those leads, I intended, if it worked at scale, to pass them either directly to account executives or to SDRs, depending on how we decided. Mm-hmm. But before they went to either of those people, I would collect 10 leads and I would call them myself, Yeah, which allowed me to understand at a deep level, the level of intent that those people have. And what I found is that most lead gen models that companies run collect people that have zero buying intent. And all you're doing is spinning your wheels, passing those to sales inherently creating misalignment between marketing and sales to hit metrics that don't matter. Yeah, that's a huge one. I think in the last two of the companies I've worked for, there was a 
misalignment was probably like a soft word. There was definitely aggression or conflict or anger between sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was based on that. It was like sales was thinking, we just need more, more, more leads, but also we need better ones. Like these are garbage and marketing almost was like, well, let's just dump more money into the, the same things to generate more volume. But it wasn't That's all ever, you can do. That's yeah. all you can do as a marketer. You're handcuffed. Yeah, totally. I've, I've worked at those companies before. It's very common in early stage tech and SaaS companies. And I call it the marketing death wish. <laughs> I love that. The place, the place that you don't want to be where the executives at that company decide that it's a good idea to scale sales to somewhere between 10 and 20 people without investing in marketing. And then they get there and none of their sales team is hitting quota and they're missing their plan. So what they say is we got to bring in marketing now. So they bring in one, two, three marketers, force them on the lead gen model. It's the, literally the worst place to be as a marketer. Yeah, that's a very good point. My tech career started as a SDR. So I was cold calling, you know, 100 calls a day and all of that. So I feel like I have a good amount of empathy for salespeople and I hate sending them leads that I know are bad. Sometimes in certain companies, it's been like a requirement, like just send every lead over to them. And I grimace and I'll go over and talk to them and like almost apologize beforehand, which probably isn't a good look for the marketing team either. I don't love that situation at all. Yeah, I love that you brought up building empathy internally too. And in my career, I found one of the best ways to get things done, especially hard things when you have a team that's working towards some big goal and there's a tight timeline, tons of pressure, you know, around some public release or something like that, or a big event. Some of the best situations I've been in where the team's coming together is because of empathy. Because one team, like the creative team, maybe in marketing, somebody goes over and explains to them, look, if we don't like deliver this on time, this poor events marketer is going to have the most embarrassing day of her entire career, right? Mm -hmm. And once they understand that, all of a sudden, having them stay two hours later isn't a big deal. They're like, I want to mm -hmm. save whoever this marketer was, right? Like I want to save their career. And, and that's happened a couple of times. And when I was a project manager, a marketing project manager in my career, that was, that was one of the things I always tried to do the most was how do I build empathy between teams? So they actually care enough about the other person to like give it their all in their work. Cause a lot of times people get so siloed in, they don't realize what I'm doing right now is impacting like 20, 30 people's jobs, right? Mm -hmm make their quota or they might not be able to get a paycheck in two months because I slowed things down and they took the fall. So I love that you brought up internal empathy as well. Well, cool, Chris. I think this has been an awesome conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, we can sign off unless you had some other thoughts. No, I feel this was great. I hope people really think about some of the topics that we talked about specifically on customer research. If you are a marketer and you have desires to be a future CMO or marketing leader or start your own business, this is the superpower. This is the thing to do. It's going to highly differentiate you as a candidate because no, but no marketers do this. It's going to allow you to drive significantly better strategy. It's going to allow you to create way better content and it's going to get you way better results. Yeah. I'll, I'll echo that because I've seen a lot of marketers... Like I teach a marketing course at a university here nearby. And a lot of the students, they, they ask me all the time, like, which social media thing should I become an expert on? Is it TikTok? Should I become an expert on Instagram? Or which tool should I become an expert on? Should I start learning Photoshop? Or should I like 
just do Canva or, or whatever it is, right? And they get so bogged down in like the technical skills, um, whether it's actual software or the technical skills behind running like Google ads or LinkedIn or mm-hmm. something like that. And I can tell you of like 120 students, none of them have come up to me and asked, hey, which soft skills should I develop? Should mm-hmm. I learn how to interview people? Should I learn how to write better? Like it's always this kind of other stuff. Like is HubSpot better than Salesforce or is Photoshop better than Illustrator, whatever it is, right? And that's usually what I tell them is tools are going to come and go. Tech stacks are going to always be evolving. There's always going to be another social media trend. Algorithms change super fast. And sure, mm-hmm. like you should go in and understand how these things work because you're going to be using them. But mm-hmm. don't prioritize them over figuring out how to understand people and understand buyers because mm-hmm. it helps not only with your marketing, like you were saying, but also as your career develops, people with soft skills, I think, are going to be the diamond in the rough, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people are are just so focused on the tools that they forget, like, man, I actually need to work mm-hmm. with people still and understand. And people, people miss that the understanding of customers and empathy for customers drives my strategy in Google Ads. Yeah. The reason that we do Google way differently than all the companies that love to waste $200,000 a month collecting shitty leads right. is because I'm, I understand what people are searching when, they ha- when they're looking to buy stuff. And because I know that and because I'm set up with empathy to understand that, hey, I only want my sales team talking to people that have high intent that are great fits, that I'm not actually even going to target there. Same thing goes into Facebook. I understand that people do not have intent to buy my stuff in Facebook, even if I'm retargeting them. Same thing would go for LinkedIn. And so I'm not going to run a lead gen form there. Yeah, that's perfect. I love that. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been awesome talking with you. As always, you're you're super insightful. You've got an amazing company and program running. I love seeing the growth you guys have experienced too. That's been a cool ride to follow. Like the content was cool and I've always been cheering for you. So I love seeing all the, like on LinkedIn, all these new employees joining Refine Labs and, and it feels like you guys are getting a really good client base growing as well. So congrats to you, man. And I wish you guys the best of luck. It's really cool. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.